Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. G'day, how are you now? How are you? You sound awful, Andrew. I've got my double double five voice back. I've got a cold, <laughs> but I think I'm not infectious in any way. I think you've gave it to me. I- Definitely do. Yeah. You spread this lie consistently and it's never true. So look, one of the interesting things about to happen, it looks like the IU, if they don't get their way with the Catholic Church in Western Australia. Catholic schools. Oh, well, the Catholic <laughs> Church is behind the Catholic yeah. schools. God works in mysterious <laughs> ways. <laughs> we'll probably bring an intractable bargaining order. That'll be interesting to see. A couple of other things happening. What was the other thing? That was yeah, happening? I think the ACTU is pushing for closing the loop to be expanded so that minimum conditions are applied for all employee-like relationships, not, not just gig economy. Yeah, digital <laughs> platform workers. Well, we'll see what happens with that. The other part that I think for us has been really interesting when I look at our workflow over the last month or so, we've had quite an increase in the number of questions, particularly for government-funded organisations mm. or partly government-funded organisations around privacy law, yeah, breach, breaches of privacy law. We've got Dreyfus as the Federal Attorney-General sitting with a piece of legislation which will align us with the British rules around privacy. That's a substantially higher burden of managing privacy than we currently have. And I guess, and that will pass Parliament because both the Teals and the Greens will support it, so it's definitely going to go through. The issue for me is as I'm dealing with these issues, three things become really apparent very quickly. One is the employees have no understanding of it other than the generic understanding of what is privacy. Yeah. The employers have policies which are unenforceable and aren't directed towards particularly sensitive information, so towards health-related information. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is you've got a commissioner or commissioners, both in in Victoria, for instance, and in the health privacy area, but generally in privacy, who just have no funding and no capacity to prosecute. Yeah, they're reluctant to. Yeah, and you look at New Zealand where you have a really well-funded commissioner who litigates all the time and part of the Dreyfus changes will be a deeper investment in making a more regulatory privacy commission. So I guess why am I raising all of this? Because I think, you know, part of our job is to talk to you about where the trends are going. Yeah. We're seeing... At every level, at a union level, because the union have really run out of agendas to run, we're seeing an employee level, at employer level, this constant issue around what is privacy and how do we manage it. And we're seeing constant failures which are creating reputational risk that sit around it as well. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing with this trend is it's impacting every industry. It doesn't matter what you are. It's not like one of those trends where we say, yeah, this is normally labour hire, so you only focus on that. Anyone can be subject to a privacy breach in this day and age, like we saw law firms getting impacted and everything. So if you're not tightening up your policies and your processes and stuff and the regulator starts bringing all these cases, then you could be... And HWL is the the legal firm which, which got hacked. You can see the enormous reputational damage and client damage that it's done. So... 20 years ago, having a privacy breach, nobody cared about. Mm. Even though the privacy legislation existed, nobody cared. Whereas now, we've had so many people lose their data, yeah. so many people being scammed as a result of losing data, that there's a heightened awareness. So, look, it's just a, it's an exclamation it's a mark to say it's happening and I'd really like to start having conversations with people about building appropriate systems to protect themselves and the organisation. What I thought I might talk about very briefly is workers' comp reform in Tasmania. 
interesting changes. Yeah, this has been a firefighters have been exposed to a number of sort of toxic chemicals throughout Australia, and there's been you know the Victorian Commission that looked into it, identified the nature of serious illness. But the first place in Australia to actually document that risk and put in nine types of cancer that relate to firefighter exposure is Tasmania. Yeah. Where there's not a lot of firefighters. But I I think, like all these things, this is the beginning of something a little bit larger. We now know uh, when we're looking at the cutting of stone that there's definite illnesses that arise. We saw this a long time ago with with asbestos and the gradual moving across all of workers' compensation with asbestos risk. I think we're reaching a stage now where we're going to see a whole range of different types of illnesses that relate to exposure starting to be put into workers' compensation, and this is probably one of the beginning parts of it. And we've got a union campaign, particularly around stone cutting. Yeah, and silly process, right? Yeah, so we're going to see a lot more of this type of action of legislative reform, and this is the first major one around cancer. All right, serious misconduct. Oh, this one was such a weird... Can I just say this just shows you the huge variety of commissioners we have. The misunderstanding of safety, I think. Like... Can I just say to you, we'll come back and talk about the facts, but if I take my car to be fixed and I've got a bad brake and the person says they fixed it and they didn't and I go out relying on an improved brake and it fails and I die, that's reckless endangerment. Yeah. Okay, let's go to jail. Yeah. So let's go back to the facts in this case. Well, I think that's basically someone brought in their car to get their brakes fixed and the employee said they checked the brakes and they didn't, and they falsified a record that said they checked. So can it. we just stop here? Because I just want to say Terrible. two points of serious misconduct: something that could kill someone and a lie. Yeah, both, both of which are serious. You know, both of them. If you look at Regulation One Hundred and Seven, serious and imminent risk to the health of someone. Got it. Dishonesty. Got it. And yet, what was the decision? That although that was serious. It was unfair. It was an unfair dismissal. Yeah, part and of it was they procedural. paid the three. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's that's actually it. So basically, there was procedural deficiencies because they brought him into a meeting, didn't notify him of the reason why he was in ten, and terminated him straight away. And they said that was sufficient to override the valid reason. And oh, he got paid three weeks. And can I say this? Oh. But they also said it wasn't such a serious. Because it, it, it was a one-off. It one was off. just one cast. What absolute horseshit. Like even children would know that having unsafe brakes could lead to death. Anyone would know it. And the difficulty <laughs> with this is they ordered the payment of three weeks, not reinstatement, which is a way of making sure it's an unappealable decision because it's not a lot of money. You're fighting about three weeks, not 40 weeks. You're not fighting about reinstatement. You can't help That's feeling crazy. that the award was designed to prevent an appeal, but it was a perverse and a wrong decision, and it deserves to be appealed because it is it really so, does. so wrong. But when you come to us and we say to you, look, we think the outcome is X, you'll hear me say, and I refer you to this decision because I can't guarantee it because of the level of unpredictability. So let's get over that and let's get to dog attacks. Yeah, I thought this one was a really interesting case. Well, this case. is just wrong at law again. So we've got another <laughs> shocking case based on law. And, of course, this is a workers' comp jurisdiction where the law doesn't matter. Yeah. But this is working from home during COVID. Woman has a puppy tied up outside. Yeah. Dog from next door. We didn't find out how, whether it parachuted in or climbed <laughs> the fence. We don't know. Came and savaged the little puppy. The woman went out to intervene, got a hand bitten, and then she suffered PTSD from a dog biting yeah. her hand. And she claimed workers' compensation. And, and the law is absolutely clear when there is a gap in work 
that relates to an injury that arises, it must be something that's been induced, encouraged or otherwise permitted by an employer. It's got to be in the course of employment. Yeah. Other than the fact that she worked from home, it doesn't seem to be related. But what they said was the fact that it was reasonable for her to respond to the puppy's cries and her employer would have expected her to reasonably do that. So that's why it was connected. That doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, once again, it just shows what a dodgy jurisdiction workers' comp is throughout Australia and how you just don't want to go there. Oh, look, I think the other thing is it really shows how, how precarious this work-from-home stuff is. Yeah, I was just thinking that, that if employees are seeing cases like this, they're not going to want to permit employees to do that because of their potential exposure to liability and they could do nothing about so it. So someone comes to the door, drug-induced person, off their car, comes in asking, you know, knocks on the door, wants money. It's scary and frightening. The person who shuts the door, rings the police and gets PTSD as a result. Compensable because they had to open the door and they're working from home. And I'm starting at the ones which are likely compensable. You can see how very quickly we can get to a stage where, you know, daughter comes home, says, I've had a shocking, I've been bullied terribly at school and shows a bite on her arm and the mother gets distressed by the bite that's on her arm from another kid and suddenly develops an illness that relates to it. Is that compensable? I feel like that's a bit of a stretch. Well, the employer would expect to respond to it <laughs> under this decision. <laughs> it's not the same. She didn't have to respond to it during the work time. Well, she didn't. The other one, the, the puppy was came at, in at risk. Came in with it. That's what I'm saying. That's why it's such bullshit. I mean, that's why the decision in itself. I can think that's the major stretch. <laughs> yeah. Well... It's actually what the case says. And I guess my concern about workers' comp law and it really does need to be reformed. It needs oh, to have yeah. one jurisdiction across Australia rather than the nonsense that exists at the moment. Is that once you get there, it's it's anybody's choice as to what happens next. And this is clearly a perverse decision. It's clearly wrong. And yet it shows you the vulnerability you have when you get there. I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think there's one I think which you is said reform. They need reform. to reform. Of all of them. All right. What we're going to talk about now is a case which doesn't sound like an interesting case, didn't it, Nina? Anyway. No, I was like, um, why are we talking which about is this about case? Re- which is about restructuring <laughs> and uh, adverse action. There was a person, there was a librarian at Monash Uni. They said they were going to restructure over a significant period of time. He received alternative duties and eventually was made redundant. During that period of time, he had raised some complaints a bit about the process. Yeah, during the consultation, yeah. he raised complaints. So there's two things I want to say at the beginning. When you go to do a restructure, remember the Deakin University case, which was Bassett's judgment, which still, although it's, I don't think it's a good decision, still is basically a decision that says you must go and consult with each part of a business where a business has more than one particular purpose. So, yeah. you know, you'd go to the library, you'd go to the laboratories, you'd go to the la- whatever it is, you break it up. And that's, so that the employees are aware of how it will directly impact them. Yeah. Otherwise, it can be perfunctory and not genuine consideration. Not, the, not so much the issue here. The issue here is whether Singh, who is the, the guy involved, the librarian, had raised a workplace right because the law is it is his onus to raise a workplace right and then it is reverse onus on the university to show, A, that the decision maker didn't know of that right or that there is a positive defence that they have. So that's the law. In this case, although a lengthy hearing, there was no real evidence or clarity that a workplace right was raised in a specific way. Therefore, what the full court said is the reverse onus is not activated. And in any event, no evidence was led as to the state of the mind of the decision maker and what their knowledge of that particular workplace right, if it existed, what it was. And... 
that didn't really have to happen because no proper inquiry was made as to whether it was a workplace right at the time in which it was raised. Because the decision to make to set off the restructuring process happened after what can best be described as an amorphous allegation around the restructuring process. So it's been sent back for a rehearing, at which stage the employee will definitely define what the workplace yeah. right is. And then the question is, was the decision maker appropriately quarantined? So they didn't know that. And I think you heard from Nina and I a thousand times saying when you do a restructuring please. process, please quarantine the decision maker from individual circumstances, yeah. deal with objective evidence. So it's a really good case that talks a bit about that. But I think the lovely part of this case, and it's a great decision, by the way, so there's no criticism of this, is that it clearly enunciates the process of how you run a general protections claim and who has responsibilities. The employer employee claimant must be able to demonstrate that they raise a known workplace right in a defined way with their employer, at which time, and there must have been a detriment as a result of that, at which time the reverse onus clicks in for the employer to say it was no part of the decision-making. Either the decision-maker didn't know it or it was not a substantive part of the decision-making. The decision was made for this reason and they can demonstrate it. Can you see how important your evidence is in restructuring? It's just critical. Okay, so I thought it was a great case. I thought it was a really interesting case and I think it discloses the types of risks that we commonly talk about in a way that once you dig down and go, how actually how often do you think we come across cases, Nina, where the workplace right has not been fully enunciated? It must be one in every two cases. Yeah, it's pretty rare. And it's, it's, I question why it wasn't. That's a bit strange. Yeah, it does. Usually the first thing it does, that people it do. It does jump out to you that there's an advocacy issue that got lost in all this process. But Nina and I will always say, look, exactly what was disclosed, show me the document, mm. give me the notes of the contemporaneous evidence of what was done. But it's very common. But more common than that is there's 10 decision makers. Yeah, and, and someone does know it's like a board or something yeah. like that. It's so messy. Okay, let's go on to the next case because this is a much easier and simple case, which is the, the approval of an enterprise agreement where in the last 15 days there were significant changes to what the draft enterprise agreement was going to be, but they yeah. didn't re-go through the 21-day process with it. They just rolled ahead. Yeah, so basically what happened was Geocon gave a copy of the enterprise agreement 15 days before the vote. And you, the requirement is to give seven clear days as yeah. an access period. So they were like, yeah, we have totally satisfied that. But when they put it to the employees, employees came back and said, we're not going to sign on to this unless you make certain changes. And they agreed to make certain changes, but as part of that, they also reduced the pay increase. Mm. So that was changed, but they never issued a new enterprise agreement that captured the changes. And they said it's fine because the employees were already aware of the changes and the commission said no, they could not have genuinely agreed to it because they never witnessed the written form of the final changes and couldn't make an informed decision. Also, the fact that it was given to their bargaining representatives and they could have passed it on wasn't sufficient because that was done three days before the vote. And on top of that, it wasn't disclosed at all in the section that... Yeah, I don't know why. ...in the affidavit in support of it. So, look... A really good case, just to remind you, when it comes to enterprise agreement, there is a time structure yeah, which is man- mandatory. It must be documented. You must do it right. If you don't do it right, that's where you end up, even when the union's in bed with you to do it. Yeah, and even when it's voted up, they can still say it's not going to be approved. It's crazy. Okay, the main topic for today is documentation and safety. Now, normally my topic about safety is over-documentation. 
you know, where you come in and there's 4,000 yeah. pages of documents. Because it's off the shelf. Boxes. It's off the shelf sort of stuff. But I guess Saunders and Civil Build is a case which remind us probably should be for the millionth time that you must have accurate documentation of risk, you must have proper processes in place, and you must document what occurred. So over to you, Nina. This is your... Yeah, so this one was essentially the worker was on top of a truck, I believe it was, and then he told them to lift it up and he wasn't supposed to be there at all and he obviously got injured. Their defence was the fact that they had given verbal instructions that no one should ever be on top of the truck and they said they had done everything reasonably practical. In this case, the court said no, the fact that you gave verbal instructions was not enough, especially because it was quite infrequently given. You could have very simply put that in the swims, you could have put that in written work instructions, and you could have trained them on it, which gives you that extra layer of reinforcing the rule. That would have met the test of reasonable practicability. Yeah. So I guess that's the thing I want to take out of this, that particularly when you're looking at serious risk, remember most fatalities don't aren't high frequency, high consequence. They're just high consequence. In other Mm -hmm. words, they don't happen a lot, but when they do happen, it's terrible. So we're really good at documenting high frequency risk, okay? What we're not good at documenting and we should be and looking for is those high consequence risks, like this guy standing on top of a bundle of metal and getting an excavator to lift him up. Anyone who looked at that would go, that's crazy, don't do it. Yeah, it's obvious risk. It's an obvious risk. But the fact is if you don't put in a swim, people will go and do what they need to do to get production done. And, you know, the beauty of SWIMS is they go through the process of the actions that need to be taken sequentially. Therefore, saying in the SWIMS you must not stand on this is a critical part of it, Mm. and it wouldn't have happened. So, please, I don't want documentation for the sake of documentation, but when you've got high-consequence risk, you must have evidence that you've trained people. You must have evidence that they're competent and you must have an appropriate system that prevents people from harm. Yeah, and I think we should be clear that the case is not saying that if you have everything documented, it would prevent every incident. Like that's not what the case is. But if you have it, it gives that extra layer of getting people to pause and consider that risk and it's just providing you that level of protection. And safety is about reflection. Exactly. You know, it is about the three seconds you stand back from something and Mm. go, okay, what are the risks? Okay, how big are they? What are the controls I should put in? You know, yeah. like it's safety is built around reflection, not 20-minute reflection. It's yeah. built around the stepping back from something and having the various triggers in your mind that say the following things are hazards, these are high-risk hazards, mm. what am I going to do about it? But if you just allow people to flow with the work, uh, yeah. then you're going to get this sort of fatality or risk of fatality or serious injury happen. And expose yourself to more liability. <laughs> Yeah, and kill your staff, even worse. Yeah. yeah. I'm very careful. I don't kill staff. I don't breathe cold on them like you did to me. Okay, <laughs> let's go on to the case study. Big Dog Pritree Limited, BD, was a pet food pellet processor in Dandenong. It did employed- you like pet food pellet processor? <laughs> yeah. I'd love that when I did that. I knew you'd struggle on that. That's, this is bullying if you do it every week. It's consistent. <laughs> it employed 600 staff. It also had operations in Sydney and Perth. It won several significant contracts with Killer Canine, a renowned vet-supported food brand for dogs. It allowed BD to invest in new manufacturing capital and outsource much of its R&D to Killer Canine. Goldie was a research scientist in BD's R&D. 
BD made a decision to restructure the business in Melbourne. Sydney had two unfilled R&D scientist roles at the time of the decision. It served notices of the decision on all employees. The notices said a definite decision had been made to restructure the business and included a list of roles that would be affected. Town hall meetings followed across the business in Melbourne. They were not broken down into production groups. Goldie complained that only general comments were made about R&D. No evidence was provided that Killer Canine would take on new R&D. No suggestion or consultation was discussed about Killer Canine taking on BD staff. No specific consultation had occurred with the R&D group and the process was flawed. In truth, Killer Canine had discussed with BD the transition of some staff from R&D, but the due diligence process revealed some concerns around Goldie and two other staff who had been difficult during the last EA and had been advocates for industrial action. BD's HR correctly stated that discussions were in motion with Killer Canine. No decision had been made by them, but it didn't change the need for BD to proceed. Goldie said she felt stressed by the process to HR, who said it will be over soon and not to worry. A risk matrix was developed that was weighed towards team performance and personal consultation occurred in R&D. No collective collaboration had occurred with R&D before the individual meetings. They were not aware of the change needs, suggested reduction in headcount, and each went through the consultation with the three employees. Goldie and the other two staff referred to above ended up with lower scores than the remainder. A voluntary call was made and no one took it. Goldie said it was unfair to push voluntary redundancy until such time as the deal with Killer Canine about worker transition was known. Her comments were noted. The forced redundancy process followed and Goldie and the other two employees referred to above were all made redundant. Now, I know a lot about pet food because I seem to spend a huge amount. Oh. Not only that, when I went to the local organic butcher and bought two chicken... Um, <laughs> you give your dog well, no, organic... Well, I didn't normally. Food. I'd normally go to somewhere which has bulk chicken and I'd buy it and then cook it. Oh but I gosh. ran out and I said to the butcher, you know, this is often happens to yes, there's a number of people who love their dogs far too much who pay for these. So, yes, I paid $30 for three chicken breasts. For three chicken breasts? No, organic. Oh, my God. Anyway. I don't even feed myself organic food. Wow. <laughs> True. All right. Let's just get on with the questions. Was the redundancy process proper? So they consulted, had town hall meetings, and then they had the specific so meetings. Start off, so they, they formed a decision. Yep, and notified everyone. So that's that's tick one. Yep, and tick. told them of the adverse impact on them as well. So yeah. That's, yep. Then had a town hall meeting to inform everyone more generally. Yep. And then they had individual consultations about how it would impact them on an individual basis. Yeah, so the flaw was they didn't go to the particular areas and talk about the change in needs and how it would impact those areas, nor did they describe the actual impact it would have on them. They didn't say how many jobs would be left. They just said, look, there's some jobs will have to go, but they didn't even describe the criteria and the weighting of the matrix towards teamwork. You can get away with a bit, but not too much. Mm. You have to look at actually particular skills and teamwork in a laboratory is not a key issue. So, yes, the process was flawed. Okay. Yeah, but what if they cured that through the individual consultation? Well, if they hadn't cured it through the individual consultation, they may have got out of jail. Yeah, so I guess if you have the first step and you're missing information, it doesn't mean that it's all over. You can always give extra meetings and get extra They didn't give you extra meetings. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just saying as a, as a key yeah. lesson. No, 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 and it's, yeah. this sort of runs in, this is the bit argument in Deacon. So at the moment, what we can say is Goldie did raise a workplace right. That is an entitlement she has under the award. 
to raise a complaint about it. And yep. procedural regularity in that process means that it breaches a workplace, right? Mm -hmm. So we come to the second question then, was Goldie's dismissal unfair and would she have an unfair dismissal claim? Not the same as the general protections. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, if there wasn't a genuine consultation, then it's not a genuine redundancy. Yeah, so that's right. So yeah. it's not valid. You don't even yeah. get to process. Yeah. But even if you say it is valid, then you've got a real question around fairness. Yeah. So, yes, she would have a good unfair dismissal claim, but she'd be dumb to bring an unfair dismissal claim. No. She has a maximum of 26 weeks and yeah. there's no reinstatement. And she's got a great general objection. Can claim. I say <laughs> she could argue in the alternative in a letter of demand and say, I want a position in Sydney because there's two roles there which they didn't offer and which they're obliged to offer as a matter of law as well. Because they must. Oh, I thought they were part of, because it couldn't be filled, I thought that was part of the restructure. No, okay. no. So those, those two jobs are available and it doesn't matter where those jobs are in your business, in Australia or outside of Australia, what you've got to do is make reasonable to, attempts to mitigate the impact. And the, consider redeployment, yeah, which they haven't, in this case, they haven't considered her for that role. Yep. So unfair dismissal may mean she's reinstated and then they have to find a role for her somewhere as a result of it. Mm -hmm. So it could be okay, but not the, not the decision I'd make because the same powers exist under adverse action. She's got quite a good general protections claim because she's made the complaints, but also a key part of their decision-making in making her redundant was the fact that she'd previously exercised industrial... Well, it's killer rights. canines not taking them on. So I'll put that in as a deliberate trick. Killer canine didn't want them. Okay, because they've been involved in industrial disputation and were promoters of it. The issue here is what does the decision maker know about it, and we don't have any evidence of the what the decision maker knew. So you're absolutely right. I feel like it would be considered though. Like mm -hmm. it's there was a that case recently where it's if you ha oh it's the Qantas one yeah yeah, but I guess you're right if it's coming from Killer Kana and they are giving the direction that they don't want it to come across, then yeah. it would be redundant. But you by then, so, and look, you've really got some problems. You've got a fundamental breach of contract of employment where somebody passes information on which is adverse action. This person is an industrial representative who I don't like. So there's a lot of litigation that can sit around all of this, but the big question is now the reverse onus has clicked over because we do have the role. What was the knowledge of the decision maker? And this case doesn't say what it was. Okay? Mm -hmm. Let's go to the next question. Successful workers' compensation claim before her retrenchment. Well, if it wasn't a proper process, there wasn't yeah. reasonable management action. Yeah, she yeah. could. And remember, we've just had one workers' compensation case. <laughs> on my anything anything, anything yeah. could be successful under workers' comp. If what she said, and she did say she was stressed. Yeah. So she's on that borderline of what is an incapacity. If she then had a doctor said she is incapacitated by the result of the stress, she'd have a good workers' comp claim. And therefore, in every jurisdiction, she cannot be terminated. Very, very hard to terminate because she's off. She's on workers' compensation. She's within her obligation period. Mm. Last one, was there any psychological hazards in the process? Yeah, the failure to do proper change management consultation is a big one. Yeah. And I think lack of support was very clear. I think the nice part of this is what's not spoken about in this one and which is really important is before you make a decision, there is an obligation under safety to look at potential changes to consult and to do a risk assessment. And the risk assessment is would include a psychological risk to people who are going through the process. So they need the level of clarity of what role changes. So the reason psychological hazards are so important is 
the consultation process didn't occur before a decision was made and therefore the evidence around which they make the decision already begins is slightly flawed mm. and there was no risk mitigation process in place for people like Goldie and others as the process went through. So wouldn't be prosecuted, but it's certainly a psychological hazard that throws back into workers' compensation, which would make it a good claim. I think also a lack of organisational justice because they're treating her differently just because of her industrial advocacy background. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. It'd be fun to transport ourselves five years into the future <laughs> and see how regulators are litigating. I actually would really enjoy seeing that. Yeah, because I think now, no way, yeah. but in five years' time when we have 30% of our complaints around psych hazards reaching accepted claims. Could they have so many different Yeah, interesting. Then? Fascinating yeah. anyway. That, that that was all done in 15 minutes this morning when I got up and was having <laughs> the breakfast, so it had a few gaps in. Nina, we are on time. Yeah, thanks for joining us, everyone. Yeah, thank you very much, and we want thumbs up, don't we? Yeah, we want a thumbs up. Thumbs up and face masks. <laughs> Bye. See you later. Bye-bye.